Okay. Um, we're on lesson 10. This is lesson 10 of the Material Success Through Yoga Principles class. Success and Happiness Through Yoga Principles, Manifesting Through the Power of Yoga. It has many different titles, but arose by any other name. It's the same story. Um, this is called How to Be a Good Leader. It's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting subject, and Swami Kriyananda is eminently capable, eminently capable of teaching it. He talks a little bit about his own history here, and uh, it's a very interesting thing to contemplate Swamiji's leadership. Um, most of you all, we all know each other well here, and David and I, of course, have been in the position of leading this particular community now for some 22 years, and uh, prior to that. I uh, I lived 16 years in Ananda village. David lived almost that long. And during all that time, of course, I was witness um, and recipient of the skillful leadership of Swami Kriyananda, partially knowing what I was witnessing and partially only realizing it in retrospect, especially when it came time for us to move into a position of leadership in running this community. And even though... By no means, speaking for myself, have I always acted in accordance with his example and uh, with, the, with the wisdom he did his best to implant within me. I have had to say, and I find this really remarkable upon reflection, I don't think there's been a single situation that has risen here in that more than two decades that I didn't have an example from Swami's life about how to handle it. And that it just, like, everything that comes up, sometimes I can't always reach that example. But, but we've rarely, I would say never, if I really were confident in it, I would certainly say rarely. I can't think of the instance when we actually didn't know what to do. Because of the extraordinary example he set over the years. And he hints a little bit in it here. And I may talk about it a little bit more just to fill out the story. Um, of just how remarkable a leader he is, especially for the New Age, which he refers to here. He makes reference toward the end of the, um, this lesson about the fact that we are in a changing reality. We're coming into a higher age, an age less of form, and more about energy and more about consciousness, and just how we have to really think differently about everything. He, he talks in here about the first years of Ananda, which was the late 60s and in the 70s, when there was this uh, national mania almost among young people for going back to the land. It's very interesting in here. He talks about how Yogananda, among other intentions in this age, really came here. Excuse me, I just have to get this. Don't touch it. Came um, to America, and one of the things he really wanted to have happen, not wanted, but was divinely commissioned to have happen, was the founding of communities. Um, the enabling people by cooperation to live much more simply. Um, the traditional societies um, it, uh, support one another through the family structure. Uh, you, you're part of the family, you inherit the family farm, you live in the family house, um, you have multi-generations taking care of each other. Young people are supported by the hard work of the generations that went before. Um, that has certain advantages. I mean, if you're an impoverished family, you're still impoverished, but there's a kind of continuity of, 
of the way the system works. Um, America, with its tremendous emphasis on individuality, which is really the great strength of America, it's the power that makes this country so extraordinary, is that the individual can move in whatever direction one feels inspired to do and by, and there's no barrier except one's own creativity and hard work. There's just countless stories of people who arrive in this country with just absolutely nothing and end up being uh, wealthy, prominent, socially accepted, leaders, political leaders. I mean, the president of the United States right now is such an amazing example of just starting really nowhere. I mean, the Bush family was a very prominent, wealthy family for a long time. The Kennedy family, of course, was phenomenally so. Um, Many of our leaders came from with a leg up, but Obama certainly didn't. Ronald Reagan certainly didn't. I mean, just a few examples. And just in America, these kinds of things can happen. In fact, it's almost the definition of what America is. And when you go into cultures that are much more um, traditional, where generations follow generations without so much radical shift, although it's very hard to find it anywhere in the world now because it's all breaking down, you really suddenly realize how peculiar America is. I never knew until I traveled how, how different this country really is. But the other side of that is everybody's very much on their own. And even though there's a, a, a kindness to the American people and a willingness to cooperate and help one another that was you know, brought to us from the pioneer days almost when people came out and had to start the land start everything by themselves, and they had to stick together. There was just no way they could make it without working together. It's part of our nature to cooperate. Um, still, you know, the one generation to the next, very often it, you're just expected. It's so peculiar to other cultures that children get to be 18 or 19 and they just leave home. It, it just doesn't happen in Italy. It doesn't happen in India. It's just so different. Families just stay together. Even after they're married, they just stay together. Italian um, men are w- known for going home to lunch to their mother's house, even when they, you know, they have families of their own. In India, the three generations will come to take our classes, you know, and they'll wait till each is ready before they'll all take Kriya, and then the whole family will take Kriya or take discipleship. It's just almost unheard of in our culture. But the, because of that, people have to struggle so much on their own. And this, uh, the, the plague of our age is loneliness and a kind of helplessness and you just end up out there by yourself and 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 also too much strain is placed on um, the primary the marriage relationship because there's no other relationships to support you a lot of times it just becomes those two and or the children are often too much the focus of the parents lives and then they rebel against that it just gets very complicated so for that among many reasons Yogananda strongly advocated this banding together in communities, um, especially living in the country, growing your own food, making a lifestyle that was a little more sustainable um, on a much simpler level without the necessity for us to uh, just exhaust ourselves fighting against the tide in uncongenial environments. So Swami writes in here that in the late 60s and the early 70s, when there was just this wave went over, let's go back to the land, let's start communes, let's start communities everywhere. Swami says in here, very few realize that this was started by Yogananda. In 1948, in July, when he spoke before uh, 
a thousand people at a garden party in Beverly Hills and announced, you know, thousands of youths must go north, south, east, and west and flood the world with little, little colonies, world brotherhood colonies. My words are registered in the ether and they shall move the west, he said. I mean, a master, self-realized master, doesn't just say that casually. And when he says it, he means it. You know, we talked last week in the Yamas and the Niyamas about the power of truth. When you raise your consciousness above the delusions that force us to be constantly interacting in an untrue manner, I don't mean because we're telling lies, but because we're relating as if it were real to a world that is really just an illusion. But of course, the self-realized master is at all times conscious of the profound and deeper reality behind all appearances. So such a one lives completely in the truth. And so when a master declares that this will be so, then he, he is, he's simply making that statement. That's what it's going to be. He said, this, I'm registering these words in the ether and they shall move the West. So some 20 years later, there's this big back to the land movement, you know, all these young people just picking up this idea, where does it come from? Uh, it, much more than we realize, uh, the masters move this world. They, they run history, they run social movements, not in any, um, you know, power for themselves kind of way, but there is this divine force that's pushing the planet toward a higher age. And Yogananda was a primary messenger for that. And Swami Kriyananda was born um, entirely and only to carry out that mission. And in his own, before he ever met Master, Swami Kriyananda had, had come to the same conclusion that what was needed was a new way of life. And he, would, he contemplated from the age of 15 the idea of going to some relatively remote place, gathering a group of like-minded people and building a different kind of society there. Now, Swamiji writes here that the great mistake that so many people founding communities make is that they, they lack wisdom on the highest level. And their ideas, we look around and we see, well, the structure of society does not seem to be um, the best. So let's create a new structure and then we'll make a new society out of a new structure. And so um, at the time, because I was part of that movement in the 60s and part of the early, very early years of Ananda, um, I was part of all that, that whole kind of explosive energy, and I'm sure some of you were too. And there was this great commitment to new systems, especially new financial systems. You know, people wanting to create communities where there was no money, where people didn't really have to work, where there was no hierarchy, that nobody was really in charge. Um, one community just had this incredibly elaborate system of work credits where it was all about, you know, it was really just a money system, but it was all based on work credits. You worked, you got a certain number of credits, and then you could use those credits to do other things. And if you didn't want to have, if you didn't want to work so much, you had fewer credits. I mean, it sounds a lot like money. And then the communities based on uh, alternative energy, on new ways of defining marriage, um, just all kinds of different things. And the notable factor is that almost none of them still exist. And the handful that do, almost all of them have reverted to um, a more conventional way of living if they've managed to maintain their communities at all. So Ami Kriyananda's understanding, and this is fundamental to leadership, was he, he always understood 
that you don't perfect people through systems. The people are not perfected from the outside in. How many times in the course of these lessons have we just... There are certain themes here. We've, we've talked repeatedly about how everything is created from the inside out. And it's when we're standing inside of it, it manifests from its inner reality. It's not... Its essential truth is not that manifestation, but the inner reality that created it. And success in, in manifesting ourselves... I mean, success... Our, manifest, our ability to manifest is dependent upon our also being able to get into the center of what we're trying to do, tuning into it, and then expressing it from there. What's really trying to happen here? Not thinking so much about the form. And from the point of view of material success, one of the great um, uh, pitfalls that people keep digging for themselves and falling into is they start with what they want it to look like on the outside. And it's very difficult by just sort of declaring what's supposed to look like externally and then trying to find where that started. We have, to, we have to first get in tune with fundamental principles, which is what we've been talking about in the last two weeks. We were talking about the yamas and the niyamas, the, the basic principles of right behavior, as we were saying, truthfulness, self-study, purity of heart, contentment, all of the things that have been the last self-control. When we have those elements in place, that's the heart of the ability to generate energy. And we can't just think we can generate energy without getting back to where energy comes from. So Swami Kriyananda, when he started the Ananda community, and he uses that as an example of leadership because there's no leadership problem really that could have been more difficult than the one he faced. And uh, I lived through a lot of it, and so I remember really much what it was like. But um, he said that the, the, the idea, let me see, let me go back to this. Well, he'd been talking about, thinking about communities himself since he was 15 years old. And he'd, he'd been studying the subject. He hadn't traveled that much in his life yet. He, he did it more, um, well, no, that's not true. I mean, by the time he was 36 and 42 when he really started Ananda, by that time he'd been all over the world. And everywhere he went, he would find whatever communities existed. He would find out what they were doing. He would study how people had succeeded and failed. He would read about it. He would reflect about it. And then he would, of course, incorporate into that all of the principles that he'd learned from Yogananda, from his guru, about human nature. And see, the odd thing that people, some people don't understand about a community is that it's really about the people. So often people think it's about the architecture. We have this beautiful piece of land. We're going to make all the homes passive solar. You know, it's going to be, there are going to be no cars in the center of it. We're going to design the buildings like this. But what it really comes down to is the human beings involved. You don't really have community unless you have human beings. And you don't have community then unless those human beings are living and working together in a harmonious, supportive way. So fundamental to any leadership project, certainly to the forming of a community, is that you have to be working with people. And you have to be working with human nature. And this is where Swamiji is emphasizing, as a leader, we have to understand that this world is a school. That's simply how he puts it. This is not a planet in which the end result is the planet itself in its external form is going to finally get organized. This isn't, I mean, I was joking at the beginning about getting all those costumes ready for the school play. I mean, that's a very tangible project. We just get the costumes ready. There are 60 children. They need costumes. The costumes are there. You know, that's, that's what the project is defined as. 
When you're a leader, when you're working with people, you're working with the human beings involved. And you can't just sort of get them in order, like inanimate units, and just expect them to stay there. This planet itself is designed to constantly teach us how to expand our consciousness until we individually become infinite in our awareness. And it isn't a place where we're allowed or, uh, to just sort of settle down and be comfortable wherever we are. So the atmosphere itself is, is uh, destined to be unsettling. It has to be. Yogananda, when Swami Kriyananda was with him and they were building the lake shrine, which is this beautiful, you know, spiritual place that they have in Los Angeles right now in Pacific Palisades, he said it was just this exquisite piece of land and they were uh, building the buildings and clearing out the lake and doing the landscaping. And it was absolutely wonderful, except it was infested with all these tiny gnats. And the gnats would get in your nose and in your eyes and you'd breathe them in. And uh, Swami Kriyananda said to Master, he said, why in this otherwise beautiful place is it just filled with gnats? And Master said, oh, that's God's way of just keeping us moving forward. You know, it just never really settles down into perfect. So coming back to the concept of community, Swamiji's idea of a community was simply to create an atmosphere that was supportive to the growth of individuals with the complete understanding that the community itself was made to serve the people. And it isn't like the people are going to be there to serve the community uh, in the sense that the community as, as some entity has a value above the value of the humans. So when we're working with people in any kind of a leadership position, the very first thing we have to get involved in is what Swami calls his number one rule of leadership. We have to be realistic and we have to do what really works. So often people imagine that the way to manifest is to have some beautiful dream and then never, that. let me try to say it, that in loyalty to that dream, we never try to, to really bring it down to a real level. We just think that we have to just keep holding on to this ideal. Now, I'm going to phrase this in a different way. When I, um, when I came to the spiritual path, I, like many young people, um, was extremely idealistic. I just had this intuitive sense of some, some wonderful potential of life that I couldn't name and that I hadn't experienced, but I had tremendous faith that it was there. And I, so I was very idealistic in that sense. I mean, optimistic, idealistic, filled with the possibility of what life might offer. I think many young people feel that way, however they define it. You know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And Swamiji describes about the age of 40 is when it, people begin to realize that life is much more of a struggle than we anticipate before we really have to take responsibility. A struggle to make a living, a struggle to be a success, a struggle to find happiness, all of those things. Um, and most of the time, that early idealism gives way to what we consider to be a more realistic understanding. It's just too hard. We try to, we try to make it work and are less concerned about some of the dreams that we had when we were younger. Um, there was a woman who came to Ananda from, uh, she was a Stanford student at the time. She was, she, this was, it must have been fully 20 years ago because I can remember where we talked, and where we talked was where we were living more than 20 years ago. She was very drawn. I was very drawn to her. I thought she was, had a real 
spiritual potential. She had also very um, normal, she had the usual aspirations that a young woman might have. She wanted a family, she wanted a home. And she was drawn to the spiritual path, but she was also extremely concerned that if she got involved in something so unusual, that it would uh, preclude the fulfillment of all these other desires. And in the end, she opted out. She really just touched in and then went away and has never, I've never heard from her since. I've heard about her and she's doing what she set out to do. Um, in a laudable way. I don't want to sell her short, but she just, this wasn't her path. Um, but sort of in an attempt to find out what was really going on, she asked me the question. She said, are you happy? I was twice her age at that point. Are you happy? I said, well, you know, almost anyone that you ask if they're happy, very few people will admit that they're not. You know, a lot of times we've just settled down and whatever we are, we call this happy because there's just not a lot of point in saying that I'm not or I just don't want to admit it. So I said, I don't really think that's the right question. And I said, I think the real question is, that you ought to ask me is, do I feel that my life has lived up to my aspirations? Do I feel that my life has been a compromise of my ideals? And I said to her that I I feel like I'm in a very rare position that every idealistic aspiration that I had as a young person, I feel that I've been able to hold to it. That's a very unusual thing, I really realize. Sometimes the form of it has changed because my understanding has matured. My idealistic understanding was immature. So I've adjusted what what my intention according to a greater awareness But I I have to say in honesty, I don't feel in any way that I've compromised those ideals. I've simply refined them and learned to express them in new ways. And those ideals have to do with happiness, have to do with personal integrity, have to do with being serviceful to others, have to do with making what is perceivable, whatever how, I mean, how I would define it, progress in life, that life is an ever-expanding experience and not simply a dead end. You know, all of the things that you might articulate. Now, Um, when Ananda was starting, the fact that Swami Kriyananda did not want to be radical in the form of Ananda was perceived by our contemporaries at the time as a sellout. (laughs) You know, and he, he did not have a good reputation in the community's movement. In fact, Ananda as a whole did not. Because we were considered to be from the start a compromise because we were conventional about marriage, we had a very strong leader, we uh, worked for money, we did not have a a radical economic system, Um, we lived in the way that we were accustomed to living, rather than in some, you know, kind of communal fashion. Um, Just a whole lot of other issues that we were so straight, is how someone put it once, (laughs) you know, that, that we were just criticized for just being so seemingly ordinary. But what we were manifesting was exactly what Swamiji's principle is. You have to do what works. And now, a lot of times when people say, do what works, what they mean is, forget your ideals and just do what works. But what he really meant was, you have to take your ideals and you have to translate them. You have to translate them according to the way the energy actually flows, according to what human nature actually is, according to the way people really can grow, according to what can really be done in this world. Otherwise, and many people like being like this, many people like to cling 
to an impractical dream and go down in flames and never manifest it, but feel that they've held up the banner rather than actually grounding that um, ideal in, in the cold light of day and then actually building from that. This is an interesting point too because this was something that Master corrected Swamiji on when he was younger. And it was a very simple phrase. Swamiji had, uh, I think it was after he was trying to convert the Jewish psychiatrist, the atheistic psychiatrist in Beverly Hills to the spiritual path by telling him all about the miracles that he'd witnessed. And later Master reprimanded him and said, you know, when you're with worldly people, better not talk about miracles. And then he said, you've got to be practical in your idealism. Which is to say, even though you're idealistic and think, oh, if, I just, if, if people just knew about this, then they'd all want to be on this path. How many times have we thought that? If people just knew they would want to be on this path, I'll just tell everyone about this. It's an idealistic idea, but it's not practical. Because that psychiatrist wasn't ready to hear what Swamiji was telling him. And therefore, he didn't help him at all by not being practical in his idealism. If he really wanted to help him, he should have talked to him about something that would connect with where he was standing, but move him just a little farther forward. That's being practical in your idealism. Am I really trying to help him, or am I just listening to myself? Later in, the, in this lesson, Swamiji talks about how leadership, how, how teaching and lecturing is a form of leadership, and you can't just make your ideas extremely attractive to yourself. You have to make them actually interesting to the people you're talking to because that's being practical about it. Am am I here just to look wonderful or am I here to actually help other people move forward? This is true of parenting. You know, this is true of work. This is true of any relationship that you have. What am I really here for? I can say anything I want. You should listen to your mother. Father always knows what's best. I'm in charge. We'll do it my way. Whatever you want to say, it's my money, I get to decide. But, you know, we have to, to be practical in our idealism. So Swamiji looked around, and he saw that, as, as he put it himself, he said, any system of uh, running a community that is not based on money, he said, it's just much easier, that's how he put it, it's much easier to use the system that people are accustomed to, which is they um, work for wages and they pay for what they get. He said any other system is just some very elaborate, extremely bureaucratic way of essentially doing the same thing, (laughs) creating another form of energy exchange. And he said it's just, it's not worth it because it really ends up being just the same. Interestingly, you know, at the beginning, all of that was very important. And then as Ananda developed, you know, working for wages became so much less a reality. It was more like really like you were just exchanging chits. It just didn't really make any difference. Uh, It was the simplest way to keep track. Um, and otherwise you have to police people and so on and so on. But he said when he first started Ananda, and I can attest to it because I was there, um, people's idea of spirituality, just to begin with, was that there would be no pressure. You know, the idea of spirituality is that the, that I need to feel effortlessly good. You sort of take the end point of it, to be in a state of perfect bliss, um, to be without any anxiety, to be completely free in the spirit, well, okay, then let's just behave that way. And the best way to feel that way is to remove anything that causes us any stress or even more in some cases to intoxicate ourselves with hallucinogenic drugs so we just feel that way immediately and then we'll just call that spiritual. And above all, as Swami describes, there was a tremendous antithetical attitude toward 
um, materialism, which was defined by really being concerned about money, um, authority, and taking responsibility. He, he emphasizes really strongly that what was primarily lacking in those early years was nobody wanted to take any personal responsibility. And the irony of it, which I love, he, he indicates in here, was that Swamiji started that community. He paid for the land at the beginning. And for years, several years, he was the only one supporting it. There were a lot of people living on the land. He wasn't even living on the land. He was just supporting it. And the irony was that because he was working and paying the mortgage, everybody else could live without taking any responsibility. And then he said, you know, and it really stung, that they would point to the fact that he was taking care of them as proof that their system was working. Because look, they were doing nothing and everything was working out. <laughs> and Swami got to do his thing, which was to be very materialistic and earn all the money, and they got to do theirs, which was to do nothing. Now, on one hand, you would think, well, this is just ridiculous. Why did he even, you know, wh why did he even bother? But of course, as he said himself, to have a community, you've got to have some people. And he was starting to do something that was completely new. It was just a completely new reality. Even in the community's movement, Ananda was singular. So people were going back to the land, but no one was doing it the way he was doing it. So it was a singular event, and no one had any idea what it really was supposed to look like. And even many people who turned out to be fine um, contributing members later did not start that way. It showed up, you know, there's a, a few wild stories about very notable community leaders at this point who just didn't have any idea what was really going on. And his position in it was that, well, you know, we just have to be very patient. And he followed the two principles. We have to do what works. And we have to be, um, we have to do what's right. And n n those two things together are really, were really the, the rules of it. Now, when I was living there at that time, <coughs> there were always a handful of us <coughs> who really did somehow, even in a very immature manner, just grasp the basic principles. You know, we were, we were sincerely there for spiritual reasons. <coughs> we were sincerely there for Yogananda's teachings. And, and to greater or lesser degrees, we were very interested in Swami Kriyananda. You know, I was, I was profoundly interested, but collectively we were somewhat interested in what he was doing, at least to the extent of recognizing that he was in charge and not feeling that that was a great offense. Start. I mean, this was a, a, a guru model and an ashram model, because people were also running around to ashrams all over the place at that time, the ashram model is that I'm the leader of this ashram and I'm in charge. And most individuals in his position declared themselves gurus in their own right. And, and there was a certain extremely immature, but nonetheless, you know, effort to understand what a guru was and it meant that you did what he said. And far from doing anything like that, Swami Kriyananda's position as leader for almost, maybe even as long as a decade, was, was almost, um, almost never talked about and not acknowledged. He, played, he downplayed his own position so completely that you could actually live there a long time and never have a clear idea the extent to which his was actually the energy that was moving the whole thing forward. Because just as he describes, he just allowed people 
in ways that didn't interrupt the flow of the real project to just sort of do what they were going to do in the peripheral things. And, you know, they contributed. They built buildings, they helped with the gardens, they you know, just provided enough bodies for the community to kind of begin to move forward. And one of the primary principles that Swami just really inculcated in us as leaders without our even realizing it is simply you work with the people who want to work with you. I mean, so many people define leadership is that you spend all your time trying to persuade the people who are against you to be less against you. The way Swami puts it in there, he said he could have spent all his time helping people come from zero to one, and as soon as he turned his back, they would fall back to zero again. Um, One of the great flaws in our educational system and really in our whole country at this point is that we've started putting all our attention to the bottom of the bag. And I don't mean that you don't help the down and out, but, but you really, really effective leadership takes whatever good energy there is and moves it forward. That's how... Everything happens. Everything happens through leadership. And one of the uh, principles that he describes is just simply realizing that. One of the things that actually does work is that in any group, there are always individuals who are more competent or who are competent, have some magnetism, um, some ability to work with others, and energy always congregates around those leaders. I mean, even... uh, when a, a lawyer is selecting a jury, they, they're always extremely conscious of the fact that a jury will be swayed by whatever the strongest voices are on that jury. And they're very, very careful, and jury selection groups are always very careful that um, sometimes the most um, magnetic individuals are rejected because they know that one magnetic individual can get all 12 people to go in whatever direction he or she decides to go. And they'll be very wary of of that for fear that that one person will go against their case. Any dynamic is going to be ruled by individuals who have the most energy and the most clarity and the most force. The most competency is perceived in certain ways. Magnetism is really the word. That's one of those principles um, that you have to say, even if you can say idealistically, oh, we all ought to be able to do it ourselves." Let's just all get together and decide. Every individual is, you know, he has an equal voice. If we're realistic, in practical terms, that's really never how it happens. That there's always somebody who has a creative idea. And that, that person may be very understated about their assertion of that idea. They may be very subtle in the way that they express it. But there's always a few individuals. That's just the way it is because life is progressive. And so... Uh, one of the uh, first rules about this lesson that Swami's talking about before he even goes into his own story is he says, all of us need to understand that it's not merely a privilege, but it's a duty that we have. That we are all leaders, we all are, are leaders or, or can be or should be leaders in whatever area of competence that we have. Because if we have any understanding of, of positive direction, We have the potential to help others move in that positive direction. And at all times, we should be thinking like that. That's why in the affirmation that we're using here, we visualize ourselves in the meditation. We visualize ourselves, there's the infinite light. And we're not merely receiving that light. We're on the giving end of that light. So it's a very interesting affirmation. 
I am that infinite light and I am giving out that light. And, and the world needs that from me and is depending upon me to do it. Because this is our divine duty. In our festival of light every week, we go through the four stages that the bird goes through, the little bird out on its flight. First it goes out with its divine mission. Then it becomes selfishly involved and rebels against what God has, has commissioned it to do, which is to be in harmony with truth and to give to others and begins to think selfishly. That selfishness creates endless difficulties. That profound ego identity separates me from the power of truth and I begin to crash in all directions. And after enough suffering, it occurs to me that maybe I need to be more sensitive to ask about what's really going on here. Not merely what do I want, but what, what will really work. And so we enter the third stage, which is called the quest. And the third stage is not understanding, but it's a sincere desire to understand. I mean, that's where we all are right now, in the sense that it's not like we can actually um, live entirely by these truths, but we're deeply and sincerely interested in understanding them. We're no longer saying, I want it my way, this is how it should be. I mean, occasionally we do have little tantrums where God gives us circumstance and we just say, no, no, we fall back into the revolt. But most of the time we're in the quest. Okay, what am I supposed to do about this? Okay, what does this mean? All right, how can I be better? But then the fourth and last stage is introduced obliquely because we talk about the self-realized masters. Greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. That's how it's announced. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. Oh, I can relate to that. The gurus have come down and they're helping us and isn't that marvelous? But the next sentence is, here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. The, um, the redemption. Lord, I offer up the little light that is in me into thy infinite light of infinity, of thy infinite love. And that means that once we get the answers to the quest, the answer is that we become a pure instrument of that light without any personal reservations. Greater can no love be than this to sacrifice everything for the welfare of others. And we think, but that's too much. You know, what about me? What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? That's what the little bird says when he's in revolt, like this. How can I fly in this darkness? The knight says, surrender to me. You'll find what you're looking for if you do. Now, what that means is we have to start practicing. We can't just say, oh, I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to help other people. I don't have anything to give. I'm just going to hang back here. That's still being in the revolt. In the, the mission from God that was given to us, be fruitful in the gifts that God has given to you. Expand and multiply them and what we have given you share with all. That was the mission at the beginning. So, so is there any limit to that? That's what the fourth stage says. There's no limit to it. You keep questing, you keep asking the question, at what point do I get to just keep what is mine for myself? Or at what point do I simply sacrifice everything and call it no sacrifice? 
when uh, Swami Kriyananda said something to Anandamoyi Ma, the great woman saint of India, he said something to her about how selfless and giving her love was, how, how generous she was to him. Her answer to him is, oh, is that how it looks to you? And he had to ponder that for a while, but what, what he was looking at was he, he imagined that she had an ego self and was being very generous by sacrificing it. But from her perspective, there was no self to protect. There was nothing. I am one with the infinite light, and the, it's the nature of the light to give out its light. There's, there's nobody, and that's why she said it that way. Oh, is that how it looks to you? Isn't that interesting? I'm, I'm so amused still when people will give you a compliment, and one knows that what they're complimenting is the, the, the extent to which one has ceased to exist. I mean, in, the con- that in, in all circumstances it's true, but especially in our context. You know, if something inspiring happens, it happens because one has not interfered. It's the yamas and the niyamas. One has ceased to block the flow of divine energy, and so divine energy has flowed. But people want you to take personal credit for not existing. It's such an ironic thing. You know, and if you even try to give the credit, they'll insist, well, somebody had to be the channel. But it's just not the issue. I was so struck once. Uh, uh, there's this man named Gary Goldschneider. I think he's become well-known since, since the time I knew him as an astrologer. But he was a phenomenal musician. He was really into Beethoven, especially at that time. In fact, he'd memorized all of the Beethoven piano sonatas, and he had this, this idealistic musician's idea. He put a, a piano in the back of a truck, and he would sort of go different places, and he would unload the piano, and then he would sit. Sometimes, I, if I have this correct, like in a public square, and then he would just play all of the Beethoven piano sonatas over the course of a period of time. It was just his idea to give music. He had, however, five children, so obviously he decided that was not going to work after a while. He went to do something else. But once, um, he, was, he lived up in Nevada City. This was in the early years. And he, he and Swami Kriyananda were friends. And they united over, you know, their both deep understanding of music. And um, they were having a musical discussion that I could sort of follow at the time. But I, I, I knew what they were talking about. But I didn't know what it was because I don't have that understanding. And... They were having some, you know, theoretical discussion about some aspect of some musical piece. And finally, um, Gary just couldn't express it in words, and he just stood up and walked over. There was a baby grand piano in Swami's house. He just walked up, and just, with, just in one complete, without hesitating movement, just got up from his seat, walked over, sat down on the piano bench, put his hands on the keys, and without any um, interfering reality, the room was just filled with the music, just totally filled with the music. It, it, there was no, not a second of hesitation from the moment his hands hit the keys. It was really literally as if he just opened a window. It was like the wind was blowing. It's like the music had been blowing through the room the whole time, and he opened the window, and it just poured out into us. It was really uh, remarkable. And afterwards, I said something to him about just uh, how magnificent it was the way he presented, the way, the way the music was there. And he said, oh, thank you for praising the music, not the musician. You know, it was just such a relief to him because to him, the musician 
the only reason people liked the musician was because of the music. It was the music that counted, and it was, that was so clearly what he manifested. Now, that's real leadership also, because that's putting us in tune with the force that everybody's trying to be part of. And what Swami's really talking to us in these lessons This is what I was starting to say earlier. It's like, how to become self-realized, how to become really successful. We have to move in to the fourth stage because until we begin to behave as the divine behaves, we can never really transcend the ego. So paradoxically, the willingness to take responsibility and be a leader and to share with others in appropriate ways what God has given you that you know is the way to diminish the ego rather than to build it up. And to refuse to do that is to remain trapped in a lesser state of consciousness. Ironic, isn't it, in a sense? All right, let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back to this. So before I go galloping forward, does anyone have anything they would like to ask or comment about? Brenda. No, not Brenda. Saranya. Yes, Brenda? You're back to being Brenda? (laughs) (laughs) if this question is kind of off the point you don't have to answer it okay but you look so so sort of let me you look you look uh mischievous no it's go ahead (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be brave and strong and ask this question anyway let's hear it i'm gonna try and restate what i think you said okay so you can clarify it or give some examples so that i can see if you know this is what you meant okay so you said in education and in other areas in our society, we have misdirected our energies to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, that's very in- politically incorrect, which is why I was hesitating a little because I don't want to be um, tarred and feathered and ridden out of town in a rail on a rail. Um, I actually heard the Dalai Lama say something because we're doing the play this year, the children's play is on the Dalai Lama, so I've gotten sort of like, I never, I've never been that drawn to anything Tibetan, so I've sort of learned about this more and I've watched a number of documentaries and I have nothing against the man at all. In fact, I've really gotten quite um, into the whole thing. Even Tibetan stuff looks quite natural to me now, whereas when I first looked at the pictures, I couldn't even see it. Now it just seems like, oh yeah, sure, that's how we do it in Tibet. But... Um, the Dalai Lama, I was sort of trying to tune more into him, and he made a, a statement which I just don't agree with. He, had this, this, he did this conference. It was called the Synergy Conference. Let me phrase it differently. A group of, of new thinkers got together and decided that they would take 40 people to Dharamsala and they would all exchange ideas for several days and then they would meet with the Dalai Lama and they would create a whole new reality for the planet. And it wasn't, you know, it was not a bad idea at all. And, and I think that they all said that it was profoundly changing for them and they came out of it with a lot of great energy. And partly because, and this is why I'm conditioning what I say, partly because of what the, uh, that, that circumstance, that the, the, the program was called Synergy and it was this idealistic idea that if you get a lot of bright people who all have really good ideas together in one room that something magical will happen. What really happened... The, the, the program was filmed, and so I watched the film of the program, and whoever the cameraman was decided to emphasize the ego battles. 
So I feel like the film itself grossly misrepresented the experience because they put tremendous emphasis emphasis on the sour apples in the group. You know, they like to focus on that. So I feel at the end you didn't see what really happened. That's part of it. But the, when the Dalai Lama was getting ready to meet with them, he quoted a Tibetan saying, and I can only believe that he quoted it because he thought it might be true. He said, there's a saying in Tibet that a hundred av- people of average understanding and average intelligence are more likely to come up with a better idea than just one person of great brilliance. And I listened to him say that, and I thought, that's just not true. Because real creativity and change is channeled from superconsciousness. It's not just a question of getting a whole lot of conscious and subconscious people together and that somehow they'll accidentally stumble onto something brilliant. They won't. Because n- nobody in there has the capacity to channel it. And I had an argument with someone bringing this up because there's this great sort of sentimental commitment to the power of the masses. And that if the masses were just allowed, you know, the power, then everything would be so much better. But Master writes, Swami says it in here, that people are united, he quotes from the autobiography of a yogi, they're united by the one, the stalwart kinship of selfish motive. That's what Yogananda says in Autobiography of a Yogi. The ego binds us to self-concern, and as long as we have self-concern, our capacity to perceive truth is going to be limited. And if we have a limited capacity to perceive truth, we won't have creativity, we won't have power, we won't have revelation. Now, I, I, don't, I don't really need to cast aspersions on the Dalai Lama, but, you know, it was like I was, I don't think he really believes that. For heaven's sakes, talk about a hierarchical situation. <laughs> He's the Dalai Lama. He's the leader of the whole people of Tibet. So whatever he, you know, he was quoting a Tibetan saying, and he was, he was fostering the energy that was in front of him. But they look very much to authority, he being one of the major authorities, after all, he keeps coming back lifetime after lifetime just to help this group of people. Clearly, there's a commitment to this ideal that real leadership comes from those who are in tune. Now, that being said, if you look at all, all through history, that's what you see. Swamiji is often, I'm not a student of history, so much of what I know is like not from original research, but he's talked about how many social and political movements all start with a small group, you know, often slightly isolated, working on their own, doing something different. Ananda itself, I mean, I, I, don't, I couldn't presume to say, but I suspect that Ananda has had on a, like on a subtle level, a much more of an effect on society. Swamiji has made the amazing statement that history will show that one of the most important things happening in the world right now is Ananda. Our influence is, you know, virtually zilch, if you look at it from a worldly perspective. But I don't think they thought a lot about Jesus when he was there either in his tiny band of renegades. Nobody knew that the the defining reality was happening right there because it just something like a revolution like that takes time before it shows. Um, but my experience of Ananda has been that, you know, those of us banding together all those years ago, it's like you have the mainstream of society and then small groups move aside, whether they're the transcendentalists on the East Coast, you know, or um, a group of meditators in the mountains, or um, writers in, uh, in Paris, the, on the left bank of Paris, that, that somebody moves aside, or the, or the Renaissance in Florence. 
small group of people work together very creatively and with strong intuitive energy and they create a vortex and what literally happens is that society moves over and flows through it. I mean, that's how the river gets rerouted. For some reason, I don't know why it struck me as so significant and amusing, but back in the late 60s when I became a vegetarian and became a food fanatic about organic and whole grain and all that stuff, it was very um, odd. It's not at all odd now, but it was extremely odd. And many years later, I was in seclusion at Ananda village, and, one of, and they were bringing me my meals from the kitchen, and then the kitchen closed for a day, so they brought me just some supplies, just left it outside. And included was a box of cereal. And I guess I hadn't bought any box cereal for a long, long time. And on the cereal was this huge blow-up of one of the whole grain flakes that were contained in the box. You know, it wasn't just like a little picture. It was like the, the flake was about this big so that you could look at it and perceive all the whole grains within it. I don't know, I laughed for days over that because it was sort of like, and it was like some conventional brand like Kellogg's or something like that, that back in the 60s when my friend who used to work for one of those companies declared that you should eat the box instead of the contents because there was more nutrition in the box than in what was in it. And now it's like the revolution had happened. It was like that box of Kellogg's flakes with the greatly enlarged picture of the whole grain flake told me that the, the river had been drawn into our little whirlpool. I've often said within the context of this sangha in talking about what our future is about, I haven't forgotten your question, talking about what our future is about, when we came here 22 years ago, we, just, we were the only game in town if you wanted to learn to meditate. I mean, we didn't have to do anything except say we teach meditation. That was it. But look what's happened in all these years. The, the mainstream has moved over and they're running right through our living room now, aren't they? And just merely to say that we teach meditation is ho-hum. But we have to move over. We have to move much farther over because we're not mainstream now. We, are, we, we never will be. They've moved into the middle of this. We have to move on. We have to move on into guru-disciple, into the right kind of renunciation, into devotion, into all kinds of other things that have all, always been there, but the mainstream is with us now. Look at the book Eat, Pray, Love, where the whole middle of the book is about an ashram. I mean, she ends up, you know, in this passionate physical relationship with some beautiful man, so it doesn't really, like, stay there. But the whole middle of the book is about going to an ashram in India. And this is, a, like, a, a national bestseller. There's nothing obscure about this anymore. It's right in the middle, but we have to keep moving over. Now, what this basic understanding is, and that's what I was really trying to say, the basic understanding is you, that, the, that a society is led from the top. It's not pushed up from the bottom. And that's just a simple truth. It's like those who have more refined consciousness, who are able to tune in superconsciously, they often then, in fact, not often, they always turn back and try to pull everyone else with them because that's what we're talking about whether they do it by meditation and visualization from a cave and nobody knows that they're there, or whether they do it as a, a political leader, if there is such a thing as a really wise political leader these days, but, you know, our president is certainly more well-intentioned, more good-hearted than some. Remains to be seen if he's going to be even slightly effective, but nonetheless, you know, at least we don't feel like we 
did about some of the others that we've had, but in any case, um, it's always led from the front. And not understanding that has also twisted our society a little bit, where we're, 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 we're trying so hard to bring zero to one that we're not necessarily putting as much understanding as we should. Now, at this time, there's almost no um, integrity to the leadership. So it's like there's, it's a vacuum in terms of the greater public leadership. So it's not really clear what ought to be going on right now. But, but when too much thought just goes to trying to save the bottom and not enough goes to really um, cultivating the power of the, of the future, of the real future of a society or of a country, it's, it's really not going to work. And, and what you see is a kind of disintegrating situation in our culture right now. Now, it's partly because we're trying to right wrongs, we're trying to help oppression, we're trying to correct bad karma. But, but this fundamental understanding of, of how, how human progress really happens, it would, be, it would be better if we were less reactive and more wise when we think about that. Now, does that make any sense? Okay. And, and it was a flippant remark, and as I went by it, I thought, oh, this one's going to come around and hit me. You know? <laughs> I just didn't want to really spend a long time in it. But you see, that's one of those sentimental things that people really feel, that, well, if we just help the oppressed, then the, the, good, the, the leadership will be able to take care of itself. Too much emphasis on the elite. We have to get rid of all that. We just have to... I'm not talking about elitism. I'm just talking about re- realism. This is what really works. You have to give energy to where, where um, the real magnetism is going to come from also. Energy, respect. Yes. Did you have a question? It's just something that goes kind of with what you're saying. But I, maybe it's something I should come over and talk to you about <laughs> instead of... Well, you've, you've gotten our attention okay. now. You'll have to at well, least give us a, a hint. Book that I found, a book that I found in India uh-huh. um, that just came out. It's called The Beautiful Tree which is a book about education, because it had uh-huh. three little kids on it. And um, the beautiful tree refers to what Gandhi called the pre-colonial schools, uh, where they actually taught people things in the villages and in the country before things mm-hmm. were... Crossed. Before the British arrived. Right. And so this man, uh, I'll try to make it short, he, working for the International Mon- Monetary Fund, an educator went over to Hyderabad, uh, and he was used He was used to teach the elite of the Indian children, and he was interested in helping some people who weren't so well off. Mm-hmm. He found, what he found through his, he was just, he found p- private schools happening in the slums of India, and he started searching, searching them out, getting research groups together to find out, and they're everywhere. They, he, everywhere he went, he found, you know... Uh, so is the point of this that, that great work can be done with people that you would think could not really be helped? It's people who are helping themselves oh, because absolutely. they can't get help from the... Yeah. But it, in a way, it's working with what you're saying because he's the leader that now yeah. is seeing this phenomenon. He found it in Africa and he found it in China. And he just says this is happening globally. And No, so. I, I'm, because I'm not talking about social classes. I mean, some of the... Some of the bottom of the bag is at the top of the social heap, you know. It's not just about who's rich and who's, who's privileged in any external sense also. 
it's the it's just the idea of it's mainly the idea that I was trying to say where does leader you know what is the place of leadership and how important is leadership can we really just turn a what really works what's really true but you can find leaders everywhere you can find geniuses everywhere Swami's telling the story of I can't remember what his name was but the great mathematical genius who was just some impoverished young person in India and was one of the great was it what was his name name escapes me but anyway it was recently in recent relative years you know just some nobody from nowhere an Indian young man who started communicating with some brilliant um, mathematicians in England and they recognized him as one of the greatest geniuses of the times brought him over to India and to, to England and you know he was a phenom so th- we're not really talking about because caste is a factor of consciousness, not a factor of conditions. You know, what's interesting in all of this, I, I, this is also out of the, the reflection on the Dalai Lama, which is that Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama are like celebrity saints because they have all the, all the uh, accoutrements of being celebrities, but they, were, they are were both genuinely, you know, spiritual people. I mean, you know, they're, they're way above the average in their spirituality, and both of them have like been sent by God to blaze the trail in ways that people already understand. So Mother Teresa came and served the poorest of the poor. She just turned her back on any um, idea of social status or social importance and just poured her, her spiritual energy into, you know, that really the bottom crust of society. And that's what her sisters of charity and brothers of charity are still doing to this day, and it really captured the public imagination because it took where we were oriented and elevated it by self-sacrifice to a completely different level. So it's a very important thing that she's done because we are democratic, we're egalitarian, and we're very concerned about the fact that the egalitarian model is not serving everyone, that there's this problem. So she's kind of trying to create a model for that way of thinking. But you know, she's exceedingly, was exceedingly unsentimental. Very unsentimental and very realistic. She, you know, she just never romanticized the people she was serving or what she was doing. You know, she was just serving Jesus in them and that was that. And, and no imaginary ideas about it. And then the Dalai Lama has entered the arena of politics and war and violence, like Gandhi. Gandhi was, you know, has passed away since the Dalai Lama has taken his place. And he's also taken this phenomenon that everybody's involved in, terrorism, oppression, genocide, power, war, and he's elevated it to a completely different level. He's not winning in the sense that Tibet is obliterated and will never return, but he's tremendously victorious as a leader because of who he is. And, and the fact that he's taken that whole debate and just lifted it to a level that... It's an, it's an unanswerable debate, the way he offers it. He just won't play on the same field. And that was the same way that Mother Teresa was about poor people. You know, she wasn't trying to eradicate poverty. She was simply trying to serve Jesus where they are. Um, the Dalai Lama is quite realistic about what's going on, but it's the only choice he has. Because if he sacrifices his own integrity, then everything is lost. There's no hope of getting back the reality of what was his country if he sacrifices 
um, what's right. So that it's fascinating to see it. And that's where a true progress in all of these fields will come, is we serve the poor because we're serving God. That's why Jesus told people to do it. He didn't do it as a social advocate. He, he said, because thy neighbor is thyself. That's why you should do it. You know, the poorest among you, this is how you overcome your ego, and this is how you give. So it's, it's very valid, but it's not, um, it just has to be seen with, with clear eyes, I think is what we really need to put here. Does that make sense? Okay. That's really pretty much brought us to the end of our story. Are there any other thoughts or questions for tonight? There's a lot more to say about this topic, so we will say it next week. Chapter 10, uh, lesson 10 next week also. Okay, thank you all for coming.